This is not intended to screen for possible sepsis. That's a work that still needs to be done. Welcome back to Pete's Grid. I'm Zach Hodges. And I'm Ella Shanklin. This is part two in our series on the Phoenix sepsis criteria of Dr. Nelson Sanchez-Pinto. Yes, Dr. Sanchez-Pinto is a pediatric intensivist at Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago, where he's also an associate professor of pediatrics at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. Dr. Sanchez-Pinto co-led an international group of researchers in the Society of Critical Care of Medicine's Pediatric Sepsis Definition Task Force for the development and validation of the new Phoenix criteria for pediatric sepsis and septic shock. These criteria were featured at the recent 2024 SCCM Critical Care Congress, and we are absolutely thrilled to be talking with him today. Yes, this is such an important topic. Let's get right to the conversation with Dr. Sanchez-Pinto. I want to talk about different components of the Phoenix sepsis criteria, first starting with pulmonary. Since points are assigned based on P to F ratios and either the presence of respiratory support or invasive mechanical ventilation, are you concerned that perhaps variations in individual practice patterns or even lack on the data of mean airway pressure that we get with oxygenation index might imprecisely affect a patient's score? Yeah, that's a very important question, Zach. So first of all, we have the SF ratio also available, right? So you don't require patients to have arterial blood gases to meet respiratory dysfunction. So you just base it on the saturation that hopefully is ubiquitous and universally available for patients with respiratory failure, one would hope. So you only need how much oxygen you're giving and what's your oxygen saturation to be able to calculate. So this simplifies things tremendously. The problem with adding the mean airway pressure into the combo for purposes of calculating oxygenation index or oxygen saturation index, which is how, for example, we diagnose pediatric ARDS, is that it adds complexity, right? Not every place records mean airway pressure on the ventilators. There's many ventilators where that's not you know, accurately <laughs> represented anyway. And also for the patients who are not mechanically ventilated, right? So those who are on positive pressure ventilation, high flow, other forms of oxygen, you can't calculate an OSI or an OI, right? So we wanted to stay grounded on on the variables that were, again, a little bit more simple that still explain most of the stratification. We actually compared OI and OSI against SFPF ratio because OI and OSI are part of the podium respiratory dysfunction criteria, and those did not perform as well. And I think they didn't perform as well because of this reason that, you know, not every patient has mean airway pressure recorded, and it doesn't seem to be as, as universal as the SF ratio, for example, is. It is possible that a patient is under-recruited and has a lower SF ratio or lower PF ratio that would have been improved if they had actually been on adequate mean airway pressure, which is the added benefit of having OI or OSI. But to be honest, that's you know becoming a little bit more of an academic discussion than an actual real-world problem where most patients you know, they're being ventilated, hopefully with adequate pressures for the most part, and only a very small subset are have, you know, this inadequate recruitment approach. And, and I think, again, the uh, stratification of three levels of organ dysfunction at the level of the respiratory system, with one point being the PF or SF ratio in patients who are not mechanically ventilated or mechanically ventilated, but with a higher range of those two ratios. And then the two additional points, two points or three points with increasingly lower SF or PF ratio on mechanically ventilated patients really stratify the group into these pretty well-defined subsets of mostly not very dysfunctional, a little bit of, you know, maybe non-invasive, a little desaturated kid, mechanically ventilated, sort of mild ARDS range. You know, we know all these kids who right after intubation, they're doing pretty well. And then the third group, which is the classic, 
you intubate it and these kids are very hypoxemic, you're going up on the pressures, needing more FiO2, etc. And so I think intuitively those three groups make sense, right? The non-invasive, a little yes. bit of desaturated, the mildly dysfunctional respiratory, you know, intubated patient and the really sick intubated patient. I think we managed to stratify those nicely. And again, this was in a data-driven approach. We're just sort of explaining what we're seeing from the data, but it actually makes a lot of sense, really has that face validity when, when we look at those patients. Excellent. Yeah. Moving on to the cardiovascular section, we've talked about how you approached vasoactives and why you moved away from the vasoactive index score. I want to touch on the mean arterial pressures. A big learning curve for a new person in the PICU is really understanding and being able to manipulate their resuscitation MAP goals. The specified mean arterial pressure thresholds that you had seem pretty low when you look at them from that perspective. How should we take this? Yeah, absolutely. So the mean arterial pressure that we used in the score were the second and third level arterial pressures of the pilot score and not the first level, right? So if you remember, the pilot score has three different ranges of thresholds with increasingly higher points that count towards the score dysfunction. And only the second and the third had enough weight in our final model. The first set of thresholds had a weight of essentially zero, meaning that we removed it from the score. This is probably for a pretty interesting reason that the mean arterial pressure that was included in the original pilot score, actually, if you look at it, it's close to the 20-25th percentile mean arterial pressure for hospitalized children. And I'm not talking about intensive care unit patients. This is based on all hospitalized children. For example, the, the mean arterial pressure in the sort of the 12 to 16-year-old range, I think it's 65, 67. This is a pretty robust mean arterial pressure for a lot of patients. Again, 20, 25 percentile. Not above the average, not, you know, not 70s or whatever the 50th percentile is for that group, but, but still pretty decent uh, mean arterial pressure. So I was not surprised that that didn't end up being low enough pressure. Think about it just mathematically. If we had included that, that means that about 25% of all hospitalized children would have met cardiovascular dysfunction. And if you have 25% of your patients meeting uh, dysfunction, probably it's not a true dysfunction, right? That's probably mm-hmm. within the range of normal values, right? And so if you look at the mean arterial pressures that made it to the model, and again, this is all a data-driven approach, they approximate more that third, fourth percentile for the first thresholds, and then a little bit closer to one percentile or lower, depending on the age group for the second set of thresholds. So we're now talking really about those outliers, really, really low blood pressures, where if you reach that level, then you're truly um, having cardiovascular dysfunction. Now, does that mean that all patients need to reach that level before we worry about their cardiovascular dysfunction? Absolutely not. In fact, the vast majority of patients are going to be started on vasoactives much earlier. Once you're below that 25 percentile, you're reaching the 10th percentile of blood pressure, depending on the age group, you're probably going to be not only resuscitating initially with fluids, but then with rapid initiation of vasoactives in the vast majority of settings, including low resource settings where they have those resources available. We saw that right away. These patients are started on vasoactives before they reach those very low levels of blood pressure, which is the right thing to do. And so the way we measure how dysfunctional that cardiovascular system is, is by knowing that those patients are being started on vasoactives because of the clinician's concern of shock, be it from the rapidly lowering blood pressure or being by the perfusion, etc. And so the nice thing is that now we have two options here, vasoactives have been started or the low blood pressure to define this. So if the patient did not get started on vasoactives for whatever reason, or they showed up already with a lot of cardiovascular dysfunction, then that lower thresholds of blood pressure may be reached by those patients. And about 10% of patients with cardiovascular dysfunction in our data set that met cardiovascular dysfunction had that lower blood pressure. So it's not a insignificant number of patients, a substantial number of patients. 
and those subset had higher mortality, probably because reaching those low levels can put you really at, at risk of hypoperfusion and secondary injury, right? And then the third variable is lactates. And people also ask why the lactate level threshold is so high. And this also comes from PILA2. But also, if you think about it, lactic acidosis is actually not uncommon if you measure it on patients with sepsis. Oftentimes, if you start on vasoactives, just by being on catecholamines, your lactate is going to be a little higher just because your glycolysis is increased and you just generate more pyruvate and some of that gets shipped into lactate. That type B lactic acidosis is very common in critically ill patients. doesn't mean that they're hyperperfused. doesn't mean that they're in shock. just means that they're in a catabolic state and their catecholamines are driving a lot of glycolysis and that's a normal thing. It really doesn't become a real big problem until you reach those you know, higher levels of lactic acidosis. Uh, that was what the PILA2 group found. Uh, and this is what we clinically see at the bedside. And so that level of five, again, similar idea. We're really reaching those smaller subset of patients with a lot of cardiovascular dysfunction, as opposed to being very broad and essentially saying everybody has cardiovascular dysfunction, which makes it not as meaningful anymore. This is fascinating. Nelson, you've done a great job overviewing this Phoenix sepsis criteria. We'd like to know what do you see as the limitations of this moving forward? So I think the biggest limitation, I don't know if it's a limitation, but it's sort of the scope of the criteria is that it was not focused on early detection of possible sepsis. I think that's the biggest piece that we're putting out there. This is not intended to screen for possible sepsis or risk for sepsis. That's a work that still needs to be done. It's an incredibly important work. What we're doing with the sepsis criteria is defining or diagnosing sepsis, operationalizing the concept of life-threatening organ dysfunction in patients with infection. That's what we're doing here. And there's a lot of important reasons why we, we want to do that and do it correctly and do it in a way that is reproducible. And we can talk about that afterwards. But a lot of people, when they think about sepsis and needs in the survey, in the international survey that we performed, that was also identified as one of the things that people wanted is tools for screening patients at risk for sepsis. Right now, we should continue to rely and improve and continue to develop screening tools at the local level. I think this is a very localized problem. The risk for sepsis and the performance of a screening tool is going to be highly dependent on your baseline population, the prevalence of infections, the type of infections in your population, right? It's not the same to have mm-hmm. an infection in December in Chicago, what the likely agents of causing infection in that setting than in the monsoon rainy seasons in Bangladesh, right? Those are going to be two different sets of, of risk factors, two different sets of patients uh, that are presenting with suspected infection in those settings. So having the same screening tool in both settings probably doesn't make a lot of sense. There may be some commonalities and some approaches and some workflows that should be similar, regardless of where you are in the world, when you're presenting with a suspected infection or a severe infection that may lead to sepsis, and some approaches, bundle care, etc., that should be potentially similar. But the actual implementation of that screening criteria has to be very contextualized. What we're providing with this criteria is a target, right? So if you want to develop your own screening tools, maybe you use your historical data to see whether the screening tool would have performed well or not, or you want to prospectively test your screening tool in your own site, or you already have a screening tool and you just want to look and see how it's done historically, you can use the sepsis criteria using the Phoenix score as your target, as your prediction target, and, and then see how your criteria performed identifying those patients that went on to meet criteria based on Phoenix. That's one of the use cases of the Phoenix criteria as an outcome of the screening tools. Now, I think, again, this is a work that needs to be done at the emergency medicine level at the community hospital, rural medicine, etc. There's a lot of work around that here in the U.S., the PCARN network and folks who were part of the task force like 
Haldan Scott, Libby Alpern, Fran Balamuth are leading the field in developing those screening prediction models. So stay tuned for that. The task force hopefully will also be producing some of these more universal approaches and workflows that may be adapted to the contextual realities in different places. So stay tuned for that work that's coming out. So again, a limitation of the scope, I guess, of what we produce is the issue that this is not a screening tool. I mean, there's other limitations in the sense that Obviously, we didn't have data for very, very low resource settings where there exists this concept of data poverty, where there's areas of the world that don't have any recording of how clinical realities are happening. And that's an important issue. But we hope that this is a first start on being more broad, being more global in the approach to these consensus definitions. And hopefully the work that comes out of this will make it so that the next iteration of the criteria will have access to even more sites, even more patients and be even more universal, more global than, than the current criteria. Excellent. Now, we've got a range of people, a spectrum of people reading your papers and maybe even listening to this episode. We've got residents who need to present their septic patient on rounds in the morning, nurses, hospital leaders, researchers. How are all of these groups using the Phoenix Criteria? That's an excellent question. So Phoenix Criteria has, I think, four main uses. So the first one is for diagnosis. At the bedside, resident can score the patient. Hopefully, it'll take little time because it's only four organ systems. So it may take a couple of minutes and they can score the patient say, you know, this patient has sepsis, yes, no. Or this patient has sepsis and septic shock, yes, no. And that diagnosis is important because one thing that we want to do once we make the clinical diagnosis is ensure that we are following best practices within the management of sepsis. For example, if you're using the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines for management of children, there's many best practices that are used after the initial recognition and resuscitation. There's actually another section on best practices on the management of patients with sepsis, right? So you want to diagnose the patient so you ensure that you're using the best practices for that part of the guidelines. Once again, you're past the screening, early resuscitation, hopefully, if you're in rounds in the PICU, that patient has been resuscitated already. So that's one reason is that diagnosis for best practices. The second reason is quality improvement. So not only are you wanting in rounds to make the diagnosis so that you can then ensure that you're doing the best practices, but then you also want to maybe compare yourself with other hospitals, right? Are we having the same amount of outcomes? Are the same amount of patients dying from sepsis in my hospital compared to your hospital? How many of my patients receive XYZ combination of therapies? Or how many of my patients are on antibiotics for X number of days within the sepsis group of patients? So benchmarking quality improvements is a second important piece. The third important piece is epidemiologic surveillance, right? So you want to be able to count how many patients are having sepsis in any given moment in any given hospital and over time. And you can do that at the national level based on CDC. You can do this at the state level for your Department of Public Health. You can do this at the local level in your hospital saying, you know, are we having higher incidence of sepsis in different times of the year or with different infection epidemics, etc. So it's an important piece of surveillance. And the last one is research. So we want to do research either retrospective. You want to classify patients as having sepsis or not to then study some risk factors or some other observational data questions that you may have or you want to enroll them in a clinical trial and and you want to enroll them in a clinical trial across multiple sites you want to have a definition that everybody can use and that really defines a group of patients that really it's of interest to you and hopefully that will help your clinical trial will have more relevant information as opposed if you use some other definition that is very broad and non-specific like SIRS or something like that oh excellent I want to extend that fourth category a little bit here. When you look at the field of database research, you've got this idea of a computable phenotype. And now Richardson et al. years ago defined a computable phenotype as a patient condition, disease, or clinical event that is based solely on data that can be processed by a computer. Do you think that the Phoenix criteria for sepsis 
meet this definition and do you think it can be used in this way? A hundred percent. The fact that we used a data-driven first approach and using electronic health record as our ground truth was in part because we wanted to ensure that this was a computable phenotype and, and very much aspects of some of the decisions that we made, data-informed decisions, but also based on the face validity, were with the goal of making this a computable phenotype as much as possible. For example, the VIS score versus the count of vasoactives as an example of making it even easier to make it a computable phenotype. Definitely, it's going to require some work developing the algorithms that will run on electronic health records to capture these patients for research, but also clinically, right? If you want to have real-time epidemiologic surveillance tool in your EHR, you could have them. As part of the original grant that we obtained, the NIH grant that we obtained to collect this database and help develop the criteria, Tel Bennett and I also proposed as an additional aim to build tools for the computing the phenotype of sepsis in real time, both in low resource settings and high resource settings. So those are still work that we're working on. This is a little bit outside of the scope of the task force, but this work that we're hopefully we'll be publishing soon and also with tools that are free and readily available for other sites to use. And that will include an algorithm that will run on electronic health records to capture this phenotype. And then also tools for mobile-based applications to also do calculations in lower resource settings. Additionally, there's ongoing work from the CDC that folks in Harvard and CHOP are leading that we're fortunate to be part of. And that's also focusing on building national level epidemiologic surveillance tools based on the Phoenix criteria. So those will also be coming out in the near future. So you know, stay tuned. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. Alice and I would really like to thank you for all your hard work in this area and sharing your knowledge with us today. You're doing such great work to improve the lives of critically ill children across the world, and we're so excited to share this message with our listeners. We wanted to leave you with one last open-ended question. Anything else that you'd like to mention or reinforce as we wrap up today's show? I think many of the listeners are trainees, fellows, and junior faculty. And I think big message from this whole effort is how important it is to collaborate and how important it is to maintain a broad, diverse network of collaborators, essentially across the world. And now it's increasingly easier to make those connections, either through social media like Twitter or X, I guess, or through participating in international meetings, being present in the room when it happens, if I can quote Hamilton, and engaging with experts around the world in the topics that you're interested. Pediatric critical care at the end of the day is a small world, regardless of where you are. We're a pretty close-knit group, whether you're in the US or Europe or Asia, Australia, whatever you are. We tend to have few links that connect us, right? The six degrees of separation, the Kevin Bacon, we're probably, as a community, we're probably two or three links from probably most anybody in critical care around the world. And I would extend that to even acute care settings, emergency medicine, hospital-based medicine in the pediatric sense. So I think the parting thought is grow those networks, maintain those links, be in the room when it happens, try to participate in those international meetings. In-person presence in many of these conferences is key. I think we've gotten very comfortable and used to the hybrid format and, you know, logging in Zoom or whatever to some of these conferences. But if you can, you know, if you can make it part of a priority annually being present at some of these meetings, it's a huge privilege to be to be able to connect with these folks that are doing similar work and then extending that work and leading into bigger and more ambitious projects. And I think this Phoenix work is a culmination of more and more ambitious work that we undertook as a group of collaborators that have been knowing each other for years. So again, build those networks, maintain them, grow them. It's worth it. Oh. Dr. Nelson Sanchez-Pinto, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you guys for having me. This has been a pleasure. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Grit. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. 
it should not be used as a replacement for medical advice. It's also worth noting that the views expressed during this episode by me, Zach, and our guests are our own and do not reflect the official position of our institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscritpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to help support the production of Pedscrit, you can find us on Venmo and Patreon. We've also had some light merch made in the form of Pedscrit laptop stickers. And if you include a mailing address with any contribution, we would be so excited to send you one. Thank you again for listening. Hey, Zach, I have a question. What's your question? Do you think it's too late for me to book a flight to the, the 2024 police in, in Puerto Rico? Probably not. I'm not sure what date that's going to be. <laughs> okay, I'll think, about, I'll think about it. I'll let you know if I, if I can go. I hear the in-person attendance is really helpful. Yeah, trying to get my in-person attendance, you know? You have to be in the room for when it happens? Is that what I hear? <laughs> That's what I'm trying to get myself in the room where it happens. <laughs> well, let's go. Let's book a flight. <laughs>